Hello, and welcome to The Taproot. I'm Ivan Baxter. And I'm Liz Haswell. Well, we have reached the end of what we hope you'll agree was an amazing second season of The Taproot Podcast. While this episode goes a little long, we think that it covers one of the most important topics we've addressed yet, graduate student mental health. Today's guest is Jeff Long, professor and director of the Cell and Developmental Biology Program at UCLA. We discuss a recent paper from the literature on the topic of graduate student mental health and talk frankly about our own experiences as trainees, PIs, and mentors. We discuss some of the sources of anxiety and stress for students, including faculty and graduate training programs themselves. Finally, we discuss some of the ways that Jeff's program and others are trying to fix this serious problem. With that, let's start the discussion. So, Jeff Long, welcome to the Taproot Podcast. Oh, thank you. We're happy to have you here. So, Jeff did his PhD, I think he got it in 1999 from the University of Wisconsin, where he cloned the famous transcription factor STM in Kathy Barton's lab. From there, he went to do a postdoc at Caltech, which is where uh, Jeff and I met. And that was where he started working on the equally famous transcription factor, Topless. Do you count it as a transcription factor, Jeff? Transcriptional regulator? Co-repressor regulator, yeah. Yeah. In 2003, he joined the Salk Institute as an assistant professor, and then later in 2012 moved to the Department of Molecular, Cellular, and Developmental Biology at UCLA, where he is currently both, it looks like, co-director of the graduate program and vice chair of the department. Our topic today is mental health. Yeah, and this is a, a little bit of a non-standard taproot. We're not going to be talking about one of Jeff's papers, but they are all great, and we encourage you to read them. <laughs> <laughs> but w- the paper we are going to be talking about today is a study about mental health of graduate students. And that paper is Evidence for a Mental Health Crisis in Graduate Education. It is highly topical. It came out this month as we record in Nature Biotechnology. And what they did was they did a survey of graduate students, and it was, it was self-selected. So they were recruiting and by social media and email, and so it, it may not be a perfect random sample. But they su- surveyed over 2,000 individuals across 26 countries, across very diverse fields. So this touches on well beyond biological science, and did standard mental health screening assays for these students. And what they found is really eye-opening, startling, depressing. Disturbing. Disturbing. They found that we have an issue with mental health in our trainee population. What they found was 41% scored high for anxiety issues and 38% scored high for depression issues. And that is way above what's thought to be the population average. Which is around like 6%. Right? 6%, right. So again, this is there may be some self-selection, but you could cut this figure in half and it would still be a huge issue that we need to deal with. And as a side note, there is a separate paper that we were going to talk about before this one came out, what looked to be more random survey techniques, and they actually, just in one country though, 
and they also found a really high prevalence of mental health issues among graduate students. So I am very confident saying that we have a sizable population of graduate students who have serious mental health issues. And I think it's fair to say we aren't addressing this very well. And while these studies focused on graduate students, I also think it's very safe to say that these problems don't magically disappear when you get your PhD. And so I think we can extrapolate a lot of these findings to our postdoc trainees as well. But I think the most important figure for me is figure 1D, where they asked these students who were having mental health issues about their relationship with their supervisors. And for every one of these questions I'm about to read to you, more of the students said they disagreed. They disagreed that their supervisor provided mentorship, provided ample support, had a positive emotional impact on them, was an asset to their career, and that they felt valued by their mentor. Yeah, that's t those are terrifying numbers. There's some degree of self-selection here, but the numbers are so big that I just don't think you can blow that away. I think it speaks and then they say it points to a problem in our, our science culture. So one thing about that figure that I was kind of interested in is they didn't report the numbers on the people who weren't scoring high on anxiety or depression. That's a good point. So I really wanted to see how those numbers compared. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting point. It's possible that all graduate students across the board don't feel valued by their mentor, whether or not they have depression. Jeff, does this square with your experience? I mean, I was a little shocked that the numbers were so high. I was also a little shocked about the, the mentorship numbers until I realized that these were the people that had been identified as having high anxiety and high depression. But even then, I was kind of shocked. Maybe it's just naivete on my part. I'm hoping that this isn't generally applicable to the students that I work with, but maybe that's part of the problem. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure that this is completely devoid of all the trainees in our three labs. Of course. Yeah. Oh, of course. Of course. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I have so many questions about this. Like, first of all, I think Jeff's question about whether this sort of general dissatisfaction with mentors is associated with anxiety and depression or not. But I also am sort of interested in not to minimize any of it, but interested in change. Like if they had done this same experiment in 1985, would they have gotten the same results? I'm just curious. Is it getting worse? Are people being more honest? Are we only now actually even talking about this? Like what is going on? Yeah, I mean, I wondered the same thing too. I certainly had experiences in grad school with close friends and myself who I think now we would say, okay, you were depressed. And I think anxiety was always very high. The other thing that I didn't get out of this is what year these students were in, mm -hmm. because I, I definitely see an ebb and flow of anxiety and how people are feeling about their mentor, depending on what year they're in grad school. It's definitely everybody hates their mentor like right before yeah. they graduate. Right? I, I wasn't going like, to say it, but yes. I um, think it's, I mean, I think it's pretty natural. Like that's what gets you out the door is like, oh my God, I don't want to hear what this person has to say about me and my work ever again. I think that is one of the things that I try and part on grad students who I may be, if not co-advising, at least the co-author with them and when they are really frustrated. And I, because I remember being so angry at Jeff Harper 
And one of my collaborators said, I know you're frustrated with him. That's because you're, you're in your last year of grad school and is the wild type phenotype. <laughs> and it literally, it took less than a year after getting my PhD and getting to my postdoc to start to realize how much he had taught me and how much I had learned and how much I had benefited. And I am so deeply grateful for his mentorship, but I wasn't depressed and I wasn't anxious. I mean, we all knew people in grad school who very confident were having these issues. Prevalence is hard to to sort out from that, but it's... It's sometimes incredibly difficult to identify when someone's having a problem because a lot of people hide it so well. It's difficult. In, in graduate school, a very, very close friend of mine killed himself because things were really stressful. And it was only in retrospect that we saw signs of it. But at the time, even the weekend before he committed suicide, we had no idea. And then in another situation with one of my grad students, there were clear signs and I was able to intervene while this person was in the lab and had to go through many, many hoops to make sure he was seeing someone. And during grad school, at least, that, that ultimately resolved the problem. But it can be very, very difficult to identify when someone's having a major problem just based on how well they can hide it. That is like everyone's worst nightmare. I mean, it sounds like we all of us have known all along that trainee mental health is a problem, but none of us have maybe fully appreciated the extent to which it's a problem. It really just seems kind of overwhelming. I don't know, going farther back, depression is more prevalent in women than in men. And so just by getting more women into science, which is an unqualified good, we may get more depressed people in science. Hmm. Oh boy, uh, I, I, I figured Liz would chime in on that. The, the one point I will say that I completely agree with is that there's these big pushes to be more inclusive and bring first-generation people, like myself, into, into our science world. And maybe in the past, there had been some kind of self-selection of people that were just really gung-ho about science and thick-skinned yeah and knew that they wanted to do this and now that we're trying to be diversify our population we're bringing in people that may not have been as well prepared as those gunners who kind of self-selected in the past but that that's just a, a thought yeah i think that's an important point not only in terms of explaining what's been happening but also in terms of looking forward as to like what we can do so if it's true that by expanding our population past the children of professors like myself, <laughs> then maybe we need to think about how to make people who are new to academia, whose parents don't have PhDs, make them more comfortable. And maybe that will help with some of you know the whole imposter syndrome story, all of that. A lot of it can stem from just simply not having a family situation where people understand what you're talking about when you say I have been writing something for four years and I don't know if it's ever going to get published. Yeah. I guess I really want to hear Jeff's opinion and Ivan's also, <laughs> although that's much less, that's like lower down on my priority <laughs> list. Um, sorry, sorry Ivan. <laughs> it's okay. I'm going to edit that out, Liz. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm going to edit right back in. I guess what I would like to hear is why are graduate students so more stressed out than anybody? Actually, I was just talking to a colleague about this paper. He said exactly the same thing. What was the data from someone who went to law school? or someone who's going and and working at a fast food restaurant, what would that look like? And I guess my answer is I have no idea. And this may be part of the issue is that we are not experts in mental health. And so we don't know the literature on mental health. We probably are not great at, at diagnosing it as well. I mean, I think one of the things that's different about grad school is the uncertainty. It's also open ended. Yes, law school is stressful to all get out, but it's a very clear set of hurdles and timelines that you go through, and then you know it's done. Actually, I think that's one major difference for students who go into graduate school. So, you know, as an undergraduate, it might be stressful, but you take a certain set number of courses, you get a certain number of units, and you get a degree and then you are thrown into graduate school and sure there's some coursework and that's pretty straightforward but then you have to basically come up with a product in order to get your phd and that product is the culmination of many many years of work and a whole lot of failure with some success that keeps going yeah and then luck plays a huge role and that uncertainty I think definitely brings up the anxiety level. I also was wondering, faculty seem kind of stressed out too. <laughs> no. Wondering if you thought we were transmitting some of this to our students. Like, are we part of the problem? I think we absolutely are. I have been very self-conscious about not talking about my anxiety about grants in the lab. Because when I, especially early on, when I was worried about money, I was talking about it to anyone who would listen. And a lot of times that was people in the lab. And I think I absolutely made those people more nervous because I was talking about how how bad funding was. And they're looking at it as, oh my gosh, it's getting worse. And that's my future I'm looking at. And so I, I try not to do that anymore because I think it does stress out our trainees when you're talking about problems with money all the time. It's true about like getting scooped too. I think one of my biggest regrets has been sharing with trainees fear about getting scooped and fear about not getting things published quickly enough. And I think none of that ever turned out to be true. And it was just stupid. And I think I I definitely regret that. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I think it's difficult, especially when you're starting out as PIs, there's training courses and things that you can go to. But I haven't been to one where they talk about what you should be saying around your trainees. Yeah, I know I made huge mistakes early on, probably being way too chummy with the people in my lab thinking that, oh, these are more friends than trainees. That was a mistake because I know I said a lot of things and I talked about doubts that I had that should really have been to colleagues and not the people in the lab. I think that's a great point, Jeff. We could do an entire podcast on whether it's good to have a we're all friends lab culture or a more 
professional lab culture. But I think that's certainly one aspect that people don't consider when they think, oh, I want my lab to be all friendly, is that that means friends tell other friends things that are stressing them out. And that's not necessarily what a supervisor tells a supervisee because of these kinds of things. While you may think, oh, it's going great. Everyone in my lab is super friendly. Then when things go bad, it gets problematic. Yeah, I mean, I think we've all experienced where the mood of the PI changes the mood of the lab. Something that I had to learn because I didn't realize how much my mood and my stress level was affecting my trainees. In defense of some of our mentors, I remember the lab leadership workshop that Liz and I met at yeah. in 2006, because we're old. <laughs> I remember Rob McClung talking about when a freezer went down and how he tried so hard to be calm about it and not to yell at people waiting until he got back to his office to yell at bookcase or whatever it was. And I thought it's important not to vent my anger at people at them. But I, I didn't take it even farther to say, oh, I shouldn't allow people to necessarily see my anxiety about everything. <laughs> Clearly, it would help if we had more training in this. I don't know how that... Right. So there's some stuff that PIs can do, but... And we are on the front lines, right? We're seeing our students. I guess what I wanted to transition from blaming the PIs to blaming programs. <laughs> That's not what I mean. But you guys probably know I do have this resistance to being told there's like yet one more thing that as PIs, it's our job and our responsibility to, to do and to handle. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to be careful about this because I don't want to say it's not a PI's job to be monitoring the mental health of people in their lab. But on the other hand, that's asking a lot of somebody who already has a lot on their plate and is not trained. And so I'll tell you, I talked to one of my students who had struggled with anxiety in the past and actually has come out the other side of it beautifully using mental health support here on campus. And I said, what should I have done when this was starting to sort of come to a crisis? And she's like, I would never have listened to you. You're not the person that I would be listening to about what to do next until I was like completely in crisis. And so there needs to be multiple lines of defenses here, I think is what I'm trying to say. Oh, no, I, I mean, I agree with you, Liz. The one thing in this article is that there was something in it about getting training for faculty to be able to identify depression. And I think that's kind of a fine line and a little bit of a dangerous line because we're not healthcare professionals. Right. Train the trainers model, I think they call it. Yeah. Except they were broadening it, saying that they could be trained by mental health professionals to actually identify. And I, I worry that we should not be diagnosing depression as PIs. No. But I guess the ultimate question there is whose responsibility is it? These are adults. Right. And we have these very large programs, interdisciplinary approaches at big universities. And I really worry that so a student may be taking classes from faculty that they who have no contact with their mentor. What entity, program, office, person should be the person who we do make sure is well-trained and also is in contact with students. I guess I don't really 
have a good answer for that. I can tell you what, at UCLA, we've we've been really lucky because our graduate program, which is a large umbrella program, each kind of sub section has these homeric directors, which I'm one of, which is a direct contact for our students. And we encourage them and actually, I meet with every one of the first and second and third years at least once a quarter. The first year is definitely once a quarter. The second and third years, we have meetings yearly to talk to them. But I, you know, I can't monitor them all. But we have an office set up through the medical school with a drop-in service where they can go and talk to people about this. And we advertise it constantly. This is something set up just for them that's totally confidential. And we tell them that from day one. We actually even talk about it during recruitment so that they know that if they're not comfortable talking to their PI or they're not comfortable talking to their director, that there's a place that they can go, even if they're just feeling anxious, not full-blown depression, just somewhere to go talk to someone and see if we can somehow stop things from escalating. I think a couple parts of that are fantastic. One is that you present it during orientation, but then again and again and again, because every student orientation thinks that's not going to be me. I'm going to rock it. Everything's going to be great. And it's not until later after their oral exams or something. That's when it hit me for sure. When I was in graduate school, I was to- I was completely taken for a loop. I think reminding them again and again that this is a service and then catching them early before it becomes a total, completely debilitating crisis, but when things just don't feel quite right. I think this idea of trying to encourage students to check in on themselves more often is a good way to go. Really emphasize, it's okay if you're just a little stressed to go talk to somebody. Yeah, absolutely. So Jeff, if you you see a student who is visibly wigging out about getting scooped or whatever, in one of your quarterly checkups, what action do you take? What's your next step? I hope that they'll be able to talk to me and we can kind of assess how serious the problem is. But I also realize that different people connect with mentors and people, and authority is not the right word, but not not everyone's going to connect with me. So we also have a really great person in our umbrella program office who's our associate director of inclusion who kind of acts as this buffer in between the PI and me as the director and the office. I sometimes refer them to her if they don't want to go to our mental health care facility. So it gives them someone else to talk to. And then I typically follow up with her trying to keep things as private as possible, but just to make sure that people don't fall through the cracks. So if, if someone doesn't go to her, then I'll, I'll follow up with the, the student or trainee again and you know encourage them to go to our drop-in service. Or we've even had situations where we've just walked them over. So instead of them leaving your office and you not knowing if they ever made it there, we'll actually walk them over and make the appointment with them and introduce them to the people in the office. But again, as Ivan said, you know, these are adults. You can only do so much. And that's part of the scary part about a disease like depression is that as many good intentions as you have, 
it's still going to be up to that person who's suffering from it to to get the help they need. And we need to really break down the, the stigma of getting help. I've certainly talked to people about my own mental health in the past, and it's it's helped. And depression runs kind of in my family. But it's still weird talking about it to people, even for me. This is another interesting question. Like you said, these are adults. When do you loop the PI in about a problem that you know about and the student knows about, but the PI doesn't know about? Is it like never the PI's business or when does it become, you know, like we're not their bosses? Yeah. Most of the time where something has gotten to the point of being what I would consider very serious, the PI is aware of it and oftentimes will make contact as well. If the PI hasn't made contact, I typically don't involve the PI, at least directly. I will call them and ask if there's been any noticeable change or if there have been problems in the laboratory, but I try to keep the the student's privacy as a very high priority. seems so complicated because if you're worried about a student's personal safety or the safety of other people in the lab, how do you weigh that against a student's privacy? That seems complicated. There's probably rules about it. That we all are fully aware of and... Yeah, well, clearly, clearly we're doing an amazing job. So this paper suggests, okay, one of the things it suggests is what Jeff was talking about earlier, that we start training faculty to diagnose mental health problems, which we I think we would all have some disagreement with on some lines. But then they also suggest that we should have career development offices that educate students about mental health and refer them. That seems like a really weird idea to me. That doesn't seem like the place you would go if you were stressed out. That's like you would go to your program director. Yeah, I I thought that was quite odd as well. But the only way that that made sense is if there isn't a completely separate entity that's dealing with mental health issues, if, if that makes any sense. So if you have limited resources and you have a career development office, that could be where students could find answers if there's nothing else set up. But it also struck me as quite odd. I think their logic is part of career development is being able to have mental health and function. And if this is such a problem, then ignoring the having mental health support as part of career development is negligence. The answer is that right now, most career development centers have no capacity to do this. Right. right. But I think their point is it has to be part of our training. And I'm currently writing a grant. And this week I wrote my postdoctoral mentoring plan for the grant. And I did not include anything about mental health. And in the graduate student training, there's nothing about mental health. And it never occurred to me until we were preparing for this podcast that those are missing, which may be exactly the point. (laughs) When we think about developing our trainees' career, we're not making sure that they have adequate mental health support. So, I mean, I think that's an interesting question because we all want more to do. If it gets mandated, that's what you do. Right. So we all now have formal responsible conduct of research training because it got mandated. And so we all document that we're doing that and, and Should we have been doing it before? Of course we should have been doing it before, and many of us may have done it in one way or another, but it was decided this is so important that we think it's part of every accredited program to have this training. I don't want more bureaucracy, trust me. Right. But when we say we prioritize it, where is the evidence that we prioritize it? The other thing that they talk about in this is calling for a cultural change, which is partially about the idea that 
of work-life balance and the expectation that your work should consume your life, which of course has incredible impact on people's mental health because that causes anxiety and doesn't allow you to separate and doesn't allow you to take care of yourself. You know, so we've been talking to our grad students quite a bit about work-life balance and kind of see both ends of the spectrum among our students. There's a, a small population of students who basically say, I'm going to work Monday through Friday. I'm never coming in on weekends because work-life balance is important for me. I think in a small number of cases, that model will work. But unless you're working on an organism that takes the weekend off too, it's almost not possible. And this is just my opinion. There are people that are incredibly efficient during the week. I'm super not efficient, by the way. I, I spend a lot of time in lab because I'm usually screwing around. Um, so, but I've seen incredibly efficient people that, you know, can come in at nine and be done by five and will get more done in that day than I can get done in two days. And I envy those people incredibly. And then on the other end of the spectrum, I see people that are maybe a little bit more like me that are in lab a lot or at least work a lot. And you do give up some things on both sides of the spectrum. So we do, that's where our career development office actually does come in because if you're training and you really want this nine to five lifestyle, we do try to give career device of careers that you can go into and work those hours and no one's going to blink an eye. What are those careers? Well, we just had a couple of, of recruits that we interviewed that actually work at larger biotech companies. And two of them actually told me the reason they want to get out of that is because they're not allowed to work past five. And I was like, that sounds amazing. Um, so. <laughs> That's definitely not a startup, though. No, no, not a startup. It's not a generalization. But both of these recruits, I was struck by the fact that they wanted to stay longer. They wanted to get more done. But the culture at those companies was literally just this eight hours of work. And that wasn't enough for them. There are positions out there like that. I'd like to talk about one more issue, this tension between part of what historically and I think still grad programs want to do is put students under stress to test them, to find out if they really have the knowledge. The qualifying exam being, you know, example 1A and then the thesis defense 1B. These are times where we as programs, we're making a highly stressful situation. And I think that's it's been a rite of passage that people think that they have accomplished and, 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 and think that that is a positive thing. But I think, especially for someone with mental health issues, that can be a very dangerous time. And how do we sort of navigate that balance between making sure that a PhD means something while at the same time being supportive of people who are having issues. Yeah, I like that. It's like the hypocrisy of a program being like, okay, here we're gonna we're gonna run you through this super stressful thing, but don't get too stressed out. And if you feel stressed out, make sure you come talk to me. <laughs> it's, it is a little two-faced, isn't it? Yeah, we've recently had this discussion. We have these exams. We have both a written qualifying exam and an oral qualifying exam. 
and these are benchmarks in how well students are doing. We really had to listen to how we were explaining it though because what we didn't realize is talking about these qualifying exams as these benchmarks was really stressing the students out and they were really worried that if they didn't like achieve you know a high level of passing that they were going to get kicked out of grad school which was not our intent about talking about these exams and and administering these exams so we really have to watch what we say and not try to talk about it in a non-threatening way because little things that you say can really have a large impact on the trainees what were you saying that was freaking them out so in our first year, we have a written qualifying exam, and it's an off-topic exam. It's written. They spend about a quarter. We have a writing class for them, and they turn this in, and that gets graded. And if you fail that written qualifying exam, that can be a way out of the program. And I think some faculty were emphasizing the fact that if you fail this, you're out. Whereas the way I was looking at it, and I think the way the program was developed was just to make sure that the students were making adequate progress and were being trained to write grants and papers. But the student looked at it as this, this is a horrible test and they're trying to kick us all out. It's important how you frame it. And so we've had many discussions with the students now and saying, okay, this is what we thought we were saying. How did you hear us? overall the students come back is this is an exam that if we fail you're kicking us out of grad school and it really stressed them out i think that's such an evolved way to approach it right ivan like yeah not just what are we saying but how are we being heard yeah well jeff this was a really interesting discussion and i i don't think we've solved much of all but i do think it's been really valuable to talk about this issue that's really affecting our community. Where can people find you if they want to give you feedback or talk to you more about this issue? Um, yeah, so I don't have much of a website yet, although I'm listed on several. So you can either find my contact information on the UCLA Graduate Program in Biosciences website or the UCLA Molecular Cell and Developmental Biology website. I'm, I'm listed on both of them. Great. And Liz, how can people contact you? You can find me on Twitter at at eHaswell. And you can find me at Baxter Twee, that's T-W-I. And you can find the podcast at Taproot Podcast. And with that, Jeff, thank you again. This was fantastic. Yeah, thank you, both of you. I really enjoyed myself. Thanks, Jeff. It was great to talk to you again. This wraps up another season of The Taproot. We would like to take the opportunity to say a special thank you to a couple of people. Melanie Binder, Mary Williams, and Susan Cato at Plante and ASPB have done fantastic work behind the scenes with us this season. Katie Rogers, a Plante intern, has been writing all this season's blog posts, show notes, and has gotten pretty handy at thinking of punny titles. Of course, we couldn't have done this without all of our fabulous guests. We would like to thank you, the listeners, for great feedback. It really makes us feel like we are doing something good. We'd also like to give a shout out to the iTunes reviewer whose subject line was less chlorophyll, more like borophyll. 
we are happy to announce that we will have a third season. As with season two, we are going to try a different theme for season three. Look for a chance to submit your ideas soon digitally or in person at the ASBB meeting in Montreal this summer. Stay tuned in the next couple of weeks for some clues about next season's topic. And with that, we will see you soon. Thank you. Thank you.